All right, good morning, everybody. It's a joy to worship God with you and come to this point where uh, the Word is preached. But before I do that, just want to make note that today is special because God has gathered us into His presence in worship. But I, no- I took notice that God has also gathered people here in this sanctuary from all over the ends, from distant lands, from the ends of the earth, so to speak. So we especially have been praying continually for Pastor Rick Harner and his family, and they are joining us today, so I'm very happy for that. So welcome, Pastor Harner, Gigi, and all your family. Also from Korea and the distant land of Queens. So a lot of people have come from different places to worship our one God together. And so welcome. Before we begin, <clears throat> let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, it is at this time the old and new treasures are brought forth on display in your word. Give us ears to hear and a heart of understanding that we may be able to see the beauty of the gospel truth that is given to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have been going over week by week, the book of Hebrews. And so if you will, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 18. If you have a pew Bible that you can find in front of you, underneath the front uh, seat in front of you, you can find that on page 946. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 18. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, But a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have been going over in our Sunday services, week by week, portions of Hebrews. And Hebrews, to be honest, it's a difficult book. It's not an easy book. It's not a simple book. But portions that are difficult for those that are ready. And if you have been following us from the beginning, God is the one that's preparing our hearts to listen because these are the treasures that await the Christian. And just like wisdom in life, Treasure is hard to find, but when you find it, when you mine for it, when you seek it like you would seek gold, the Bible tells us it is completely worth it. The kingdom of heaven is like a rare jewel or a pearl that once the merchant finds it, he sells everything that he has so he can purchase that pearl and he goes away satisfied. And that's the kind of treasure that awaits us when we mine the Word, when we look in the Bible as we will see today. And if you were here last week, you understand that some of these treasures that are being pointed out are difficult to understand. But you will also see these things will build up upon each other so that the understanding to the listeners will start to come by the power of the Holy Spirit in His Holy Word. And so let's get to it. There are 18 verses that I'm going to go over today, this morning. And so let's go over verses 1 first. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. We have been going over this. This is a review of a certain degree with something new that is going to be inserted. But here's the review. There's a shadow. And the shadow is not to be mistaken with the deception. It's not a deceiving shadow. But it's a shadow that would point to as if around the bend or around the corner, there is something that is coming. That's what the shadow is signifying. So there is something that is coming around the bend, but you know it's something that's, that's going to come. It's a shadow, but it's not the substance. And so what is being revealed here in verse 1? You cannot possess the substance by possessing the shadow. So even though I would cast a shadow, you don't possess me by holding on to the shadow. But then there is a substance that will come around the corner. And that is going to signify something to us that we have to understand. When we talk about the new covenant that is in the Bible, we are talking about what God has designed and planned from the beginning and even before the beginning of time. The new covenant is not a plan B. It's not where he was like, here's the Israelites, I'm going to try this plan, and then, oh, it failed. So here's another plan. That is not what the Bible is saying. 
There is no plan B for God. This was designed and it was planned and it was prepared from before the beginning of time. And this is what has been being made shown to us. There's the shadow. That's what we were talking about. And around the shadow, there will be substance. And that's where the distinction is being made. The differences between the shadow and the substance couldn't be more drastic because these are called two different, in verse 1, realities. That's the Greek word pragma, which means actions or event where we get pragmatism or pragmatics. These results from these two covenants, the first and the new, couldn't be more different. And so I have talked about the first and the new covenant because the Bible has. And so some of you who have learned about covenants might be asking this too. What about the other covenants? Why do you only refer to the Mosaic covenant? What about the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant? What about all these other covenants? Well, what the Bible means, what the author of Hebrew means, when he is citing the first covenant or the Old Testament, is he is saying that all these general, the grand principle covered in the Old Testament while using the Mosaic example, that is the primary example he's going to use, and he puts it in the blood, in the sacrifices, as we saw in the previous chapter. But we are also reminded that in the Old Testament, actual possession of the substance could not be attained. That's what we have to get here. It's not as though this is a plan A and here Jesus is a plan B. The shadow was foretelling of the substance to come. That is Jesus Christ. And the substance, when he comes around the corner, we see and we can hold on to Jesus. That is the new covenant. But the actual possession of the substance could not take place in the Old Testament, and we are shown that because every year they had to make sacrifices continually, every year. And even though they made sacrifices every year, they could not be made perfect. That's what the author is saying. The conclusion that we are to draw from this is that even though the sacrifices are given by priests year after year, what is he saying? He's saying the sacrifices are not effective. That's a very, very bold claim that he's making. Remember, this is a letter to the Hebrews. These are Hebrew Israelites, the Jewish people that are listening to this. They have been doing sacrifices every year, and he's saying this. This is the shadow. It does not prove effective because it is not the substance. Because efficacy would have meant that the inside would have been cleansed just as the outside. These sacrifices may have cleansed the outside, but what people are longing for is for the inside, the heart to be cleansed. And the author is saying that not only did the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament sacrifices not do that, it could never do that. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
If these sacrifices provided a definitive cleansing, a complete cleansing, the author is saying you would no longer be conscious of your sins. But yearly the sacrifices are given so that what? You are reminded of your sins. Year after year in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you will be reminded of your sins. And as long as you're reminded of your sins, you could not serve God. The definitive and decisive cleansing, therefore, is a prerequisite to gain unhindered access to God. And this has only been achieved through Jesus Christ. You see, the Day of Atonement was designated as a day of fasting and a confession of sins. It was an elaborate ritual, and it served to highlight and stress the consciousness of sin. You wouldn't only, though, be reminded of your sin, but the more distressing truth you would have recognized in the Day of Atonement is that sin separated you from God. There was a curtain. You could not enter the curtain. Even though the sacrifice was accepted by the high priest every year, even though that would be the case, or it could be the case rather, you on the outside could not still enter into the curtain. You were still outside. You did not have access to God. That is the more distressing truth that no matter what you did, you could not enter the most holy place no matter what. So the author is hitting in these first three verses the point that sacrifices did every year and what it did, it reminded you of your sins. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And here is why you cannot get a decisive and definitive cleansing of sins. The blood of goats and bulls can't do that. If it could have, then you could have entered the most holy place. You could have finally had communion with God. Isn't that what we all, in the very essence of who we are, really want and desire? We want communion with God. But the blood of goats and bulls could not do that. It was not possible. The reason why it is a decisive and definitive cleansing that is being clarified and also, I just want to point out, it's not because it didn't do some sort of cleansing. But didn't those sacrifices stay God's hands from the destruction of the people? It's just like soap. You could wash your body with soap. You could kill as many germs as you want or as you can, I guess, with the soap, antibacterial or whatever you want. It kills some, but no matter how much you clean the outside, it will not save you. You will eventually die. I know that's a little morbid, but soap cannot save you. I'm sure you all know. Eventually, these germs will get to you, right? And you will die. But that's the outside cleansing that it's pointing to. You don't need just outside cleansing. You need inside cleansing. Verse 5 to 7, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I just want to take a quick note. This is from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. 
in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible that we have here, if you turn to Psalm 40, this would be translated as a piercing of the ear or opening of the ear. They mean the same thing. But I want to continue on. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Again, this is a quote from Psalm 40, 6-8. What it is doing, it is contrasting the sacrifices of the Old Testament with what? With the body. The Old Testament sacrifices are here. What is it being contrasted with? With a body, this body that would be superior to these Old Testament sacrifices. Here, the previous themes are repeated, and I believe they are worth repeating again. God is not satisfied with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Why? Because it failed to change the heart, the desire to do God's will. If they had then the people's hearts would have been changed. But there is a perfect body that these are pointing to that has been prepared that will accomplish the will of God. Also, I'll note here that the incarnation is alluded to. The transcendent Son of God became man in order to fulfill this will of God. In order to satisfy God, He became man. He became the body. And now what he's going to do, now that he's quoted Psalm 40, the author is going to exegete, explain what Psalm 40 means in verse 8 and 9. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second This is an exegesis of Psalm 40. He takes that entire passage and he splits it into two. He splits it into two. And how does he do that? Because the first part he is talking about, not just the Old Testament, he's talking about the abolishing of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrifices abolishment. He puts an emphasis, and what's the emphasis on the part that God did not desire or take pleasure in these sacrifices and offerings that were done according to the Old Testament. He's not just talking about any old sacrifices. Maybe someone just did any old sacrifices, God didn't like that. No, 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 no. He's saying, according to the law, even if you did these according to the law, that is not what would have satisfied him. He uses strong, emphatic language saying, He does not desire or take pleasure. He rejects the ones, even the ones according to the law. These are intense verbs that are used to show us a comprehensive, a complete pointing out of all the sacrifices and offerings. Again, all the sacrifices and offerings are unwanted, and unpleasing to God. That is a very, very strong language that's being used, and it's put up against the second part. Behold, I have come to do your will. This sacrifice, this is the sacrifice that God wants. The offering of Christ is what God desires. So what's the point of this juxtaposition? 
In the latter part of verse 9, the author puts a chiastic structure. It's like a poem, but it's beautifully put. It's only about five words, but with the middle hinge word, hina. But it's translated as, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Again, I said the middle word is hina, but these are the two sides. He is saying in two Greek words, he says, abolish first hina, second establish. Abolish first, so second established. And so this kind of chiastic structure is shown to us to put emphasis The first is abolished so that the second is established. The first is done away with because the new covenant has come. Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus Christ entered the world, His will was perfectly in line with the Father's. And His body was completely integrated to or with his will. Therefore, through the offering up of Jesus' body, we, meaning those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are made holy. This is a very, very big statement. This implies that there is a new covenant people, meaning a people of a new covenant, and his sacrifice needs no repetition. There's no need to repeat the sacrifice over and over again. Why? Because this one sacrifice is effective. We talked about efficacy. What does it mean for a sacrifice to be effective? It means that we are made holy. We are a sanctified people. This is a new community that God has created, people that He has set apart and made holy, people that are consecrated so that we can serve God once for all. This again is contrasted. He does a contrast again in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It's similar to verse 1, and it's placed again here in verse 11 to show that the action of the priests are not once for all. They needed to be repeated again and again, and that without the ability to effectuate holiness. They did it again and again, and it wasn't effective. And so he repeats that again for that emphasis, verse 12 to 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now moving on from the point that was made in verse 1 and verse 11, the author draws another sharp distinction between earthly priests and the heavenly one. The offering that Christ made was not only once for all, but it was once for all, for all time. And because it requires no repetition, where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of God. His work of atonement is not only completed, but he is now enthroned, seated, another word for session, 
means that he rules. Jesus Christ has completed this task, this sacrifice, once for all, and now he is ruling enthroned in heaven. In verse 13, we see a reference then back to Psalm 110. In this context, though, we see another allusion to the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come back again until it is that time where his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That means he will come again. Again, these themes are being repeated so that you can see that as he adds elements, you see how all these puzzle pieces fit together in the word of God. And so the benefits of his sacrifice will endure in perpetuity for the sanctified community. That means those that have been called by Jesus Christ, if you hold Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the gift and the promise is you will enjoy the benefits of the sacrifice forever, for all time. Verses 15 to 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The Holy Spirit in verse 15, the author is saying the Holy Spirit is confirming what the author is saying. The Holy Spirit is confirming what I just said because he is quoting now from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. There was a promise of a new covenant, and it was made through the prophet Jeremiah. And this new covenant would do what the old covenant could not. What's the added dimension? The implication is what the Shema was supposed to do. What people know as the Shema is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, especially verse 8. But let me read for you verses 4 to verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes." You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, especially verse 8, the devout Hebrew or the Israelite would have carried phylacteries, meaning little leather boxes, right? Little phylacteries where they would write down the word of God in them, and they would put them on their hands, and they would put them on their heads. And this is where you would see that this is, what the Shema was pointing to. That's what people were doing. Now, what is the new covenant? What is Jeremiah Jeremiah pointing to? What the author has said is that now if the law is not only on your hands and on your head, but it's actually in your minds and in your heart, what does that intimate? That you could actually receive full and complete cleansing where God remembers your sins no more. And now if it is in your mind and in your heart, you can enter into service to God. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
if there is no longer any offering for sin, that means there is no more obstacle, nothing that can keep you from communion with God. The sanctified community will always and forever enjoy unhindered and complete access to God. We are able to worship the true God, truly the eternal God, permanently. And so, maybe we can have a little bit of a more in-depth example. I was thinking about how to explain the new covenant to you all, because after this, he moves on and goes into another warning in the end of chapter 10. But people always ask me, oh, do you do this with Elizabeth? Elizabeth, my baby, right? Do you do this? Do you show this? What do you do? And so people, this is my personal opinion, personal opinion. Some people say they feel sorry for Elizabeth because there must be a lot of pressure. Apparently, I exert pressure. I don't exert any pressure. Maybe physically because I'm a heavy man, but otherwise, no pressure. But there's this children's show. I'm not going to name it. Let's just call it chocolate fruit, whatever it is, right? And so there's this children's show. They're like, why don't you show the, your baby chocolate fruit? And I would say never. It's like, why? Um, so 10 years ago, there was another s- similar show. It was like called Baby Einstein or whatever. And people were like, you should watch it. Baby Einstein, don't you want your kid to be like Einstein? It's like, sure. So I turned it on. And it's literally just picture frames that change every three seconds. It's like, what are we trying to give my kid ADD? No to baby Einstein. It's like baby ADHD. And so Chocolate Fruit, this show that's very popular, not judging if you do show, I'm just saying, not exerting pressure. I'm just giving you my opinion. The colors change every three seconds. And these are the brightest reds and the brightest greens. No wonder kids are like, ha, and watching it. (laughs) Because it's always constantly changing in front of your face. And so what is that pointing to? Why do parents take time to measure and weigh certain things they want to give to their child? Why do you do that? Because you want to instill within them. Now, look, that's pointing to a principle. It's not pointing to the actual action. It's not like you're 18 now. It's like, better not watch chocolate fruit. That's not the point here. The point is the principle. You're trying to reach foundational principles to a child so that they are adopted and executed. Because why? Because once they do that, you have actually reached adulthood. Adulthood is reached when foundational principles are adopted and executed. That's why it seems like such a crime today when so many older people want to stay young. Why? Because you just want to look at Instagram and go, ha, like that. The same thing is happening because that principle hasn't been adopted. And so even our older people want to stay in their youth and they haven't gotten the principle to adulthood. So another way to understand the first and the new covenant is this illustration that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3. So this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 to 25. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So that word guardian in the Greek is paedagogos, which means it was a a special kind of slave in the household whose job it was to 
conduct the upbringing and give the principles to a young boy in the household. That's who the guardian was. He was supposed to basically be elementary school for him. And he would instruct him, give them foundational principles. And when the boy grew up, the guardian is no longer needed because now he could finally accompany his father. So once the child has grown to adulthood, the guardian is obsolete. Now, I want to make this special note. The guardian may be obsolete, but what the guardian taught is not obsolete. What the guardian taught is not obsolete. The guardian is obsolete. So Paul uses this analogy of growth from childhood to adulthood as a way of showing how God is moving his people through redemptive history. He doesn't just go, bah, and give everything at once. He first shows a shadow, and people know what to expect, and the substance comes in the same way, saying the old covenant was administered, and it was intended for people in their childhood. And when people, the people of God, reach adulthood, the guardian is no longer needed. It's now obsolete, because the laws that the guardian was teaching is now a part of them. Now they are an adult. It's a part of who you are. Whether you know it or not, what your parents taught you is a part of who you are. And therefore, now I don't need the guardian because now I can learn directly from my father. It doesn't mean what the guardian taught is false. But it means that the guardian himself is no longer needed because you are now an adult. You can finally... Enter into the presence of the Father and commune with Him and spend time with Him and enjoy life together and learn directly from Him. That's where we see the old covenant and the new covenant. There's a focal point. There's a center point. Who is that center point? Who did it point to and how can we go forward? It's Jesus Christ. The old covenant, what it did a guardian prepared a way for Jesus Christ and prepares his people to receive Jesus Christ. And the Old Covenant, which was you know, shown to us, many traditionally have described it as the moral law, was taught. And then that undergoes a reality. It undergoes a change in a child's life. It becomes who they are, their understanding increases. If you go, don't touch that stove, it's hot. A child doesn't understand. But once you reach adulthood, you understand the principle. It's hot, I shouldn't touch it. There's another hot thing, I shouldn't touch that either. There are uses for hot things though. All these things are there. In the same way, God's people, through Jesus Christ, reach adulthood. That adulthood is called the sanctified life. It means God is now sanctifying us so that we are holy and we can enter into communion with Him. Everything points to Jesus Christ. You know, people thought the promised land was a piece of land in the Old Testament, but what they really saw after Jesus Christ was the promised land was Jesus Christ and all that He rules. All of creation is pro the promised land. And in fact, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth when Jesus Christ comes again. They thought the temple was a building with stones and rocks and some gold inlays. 
But what they realize in Jesus Christ, the temple is us, where God resides in us, rather than just some building in stone and mortar. Mortar, excuse me. And the ceremonial laws that we just saw is pointing to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Not the blood of goats and bulls, but once for all, Jesus Christ's death completes all of that work. And we are now benefactors of his atoning, saving work. Once for all in Jesus Christ. That's who we are defined as. We are defined not by location, not by ethnicity, not even by what we do, but more importantly, we are defined by Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a sanctified people. God claims us, and we are a holy people because he has claimed us, and he sanctifies us, and he makes us holy. And all these illustrations are used here to teach us the beauty of what God has in store. If we get this, if we get this, you'll see chapters 11, 12, and 13 are the riches that are just come pouring out now to the people of God. If you get this, if you understand this, God is going to open the doors of understanding and this kind of blessing that is in store for the people of God, 11, 12, 13. And so that's why he's taking so much time repeating and also adding on, repeating that and adding on because the riches and treasures of what Jesus Christ has done is truly amazing. It's truly breathtaking and awe-inspiring. It's truly worthy of giving God worship. So let's worship God for calling us to be his sanctified people. Let's pray.